Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome if you're new. Welcome back to my repeat listeners. This is the last episode, or at least the last planned episode in the cell biology series. And today we're going to talk about cell death, specifically cell death by apoptosis. So why does a cell die? It's hard to say. We really have to infer from context as to the function and mechanism of the death. But in normal physiology, cells often have to die for a variety of reasons. Some cells have very temporary roles, like they secrete growth factors, and then they have to die or it would be pathological. In embryology, there's a lot of cell death. In digit definition, the interdigital webbing has to die away. When the neural tube closes, cell death is required, and if not, the tube doesn't close and you can get spina bifida. In inflammation-associated expansion of immune cells, you need these cells to die. You don't want them to linger forever. You'd have chronic inflammation. Damaged cells have to die. Cells that have DNA damage, oxidative stress, when when they're damaged beyond repair, they have to die. Some cells just have an intrinsic half-life, like platelets. They die in about 100 hours, which is good because you need the turnover. Or normal wear and tear. Eventually, most cells get replaced. Skin and gut turn over frequently. Other cells do it more slowly, but most cells eventually do wear out and get replaced. Some cells do not. Neurons live forever, or at least they live as long as you do, or they should. Uh, But most cells do have some kind of turnover. So pathological cell death would be cell death in the wrong time, the wrong tissue type, or via the wrong mechanism. Lack of cell death can be pathological too, like in cancer. Irreparable damage, though, can lead to cell death by necrosis. Uncontrolled inflammation can cause neighboring tissue damage, or pathological protein aggregation can stress cells like neurons enough to kill them. Now we have to talk about how cells die. So there are lots of different ways, but there are two kind of broad classes. We have non-lytic cell death with apoptosis being the prototype. This is cell death where the membrane doesn't rupture. It's very orderly and very energy intense, and it can be rapidly cleared by professional phagocytes like macrophages and dendritic cells. The other form of cell death is lytic cell death, where the, mel- where the cell membrane bursts and lots of content gets released and activates an immune response. We're going to discuss necrosis and inflammation in depth later, but today I want to focus on apoptosis and just kind of scratch the surface of this really fascinating phenomenon that, like so many other phenomena in the human body, we really don't fully understand yet. But just to kind of put it in words, we're going to articulate the difference between necrosis and apoptosis. This is kind of like the difference between murder and suicide. Necrosis happens when the cell is murdered. It's acted on by an outside force and it swells, releases damage-associated patterns which activate the innate immune system, and it's followed by inflammation. Apoptosis is internally regulated, and it's a much neater process in which caspase activation causes chromatin condensation, nuclear fragmentation, and cytoplasmic blebbing, and then apoptotic bodies express proteins that attract phagocytes and get removed very quickly with little or no inflammation. So what does this look like? During the early process of apoptosis, cell shrinkage and pycnosis are visible by light microscopy. With cell shrinkage, the cells are going to be smaller in size, the cytoplasm is going to look very dense, and the organelles are going to be more tightly packed. Pycnosis is a result of chromatin condensation, and this is the most characteristic feature of apoptosis, actually. So on histologic examination with H&E stain, apoptosis involves single cells or small clusters of cells, and the apoptotic cell is going to be round or oval mass with a very dark eosinophilic cytoplasm and very dense purple nuclear chromatin fragmentants. There's also going to be extensive plasma membrane blebbing, followed by karyorexis, which is irregularly distributed chromatin, 
and separation of cell fragments into apoptotic bodies during a process called budding. The apoptotic bodies consist of cytoplasm with tightly packed organelles with or without a nuclear fragment, depending on which part of the cytoplasm you are. And the organelle integrity is actually still maintained, and all of this is still enclosed within an intact membrane, which is important because this is the reason there's no inflammation. These bodies are subsequently phagocytosed by macrophages usually, or parenchymal cells, and they're degraded within phagolysosomes. Macrophages that engulf and digest apoptotic cells are called tingible body macrophages. The tingible bodies are the bits of nuclear debris from the apoptotic cells, which you can see on H&E staining. There's essentially no inflammatory reaction associated with the process of apoptosis or with the removal of the apoptotic cell bodies for three reasons. First of all, the apoptotic cells do not release their cellular constituents into the surrounding tissue. Second of all, they're quickly phagocytosed by surrounding cells, and which prevents secondary necrosis. And third of all, the engulfing cells don't produce inflammatory cytokines. So how is apoptosis driven? This was actually first observed in worms. We're going to talk a lot about worms today, actually. But to date, research indicates that there are two main apoptotic pathways, the extrinsic or death receptor pathway and the intrinsic or mitochondrial pathway. There's now evidence that the two pathways are linked and that molecules in one pathway can influence the other. There's an additional pathway that involves T-cell-mediated cytotoxicity, but essentially all of these pathways are going to converge on the same terminal or execution pathway. And this pathway is initiated by the cleavage of caspase 3 and results in DNA fragmentation, degradation of cytoskeletal and nuclear proteins, cross-linking of proteins, formation of apoptotic bodies, expression of ligands for phagocytic cell receptors, and then uptake by phagocytic cells. Let's just talk about the caspases a little bit. Caspases have proteolytic activity, and they're able to cleave proteins at aspartic acid residues, although different caspases have different specificities involving recognition of neighboring amino acids. Once caspases are initially activated, there seems to be an irreversible commitment towards cell death. We'll come back and address this at the end. To date, there have been 10 major caspases identified and broadly categorized into initiators, effectors or executioners, and inflammatory caspases. Caspases are widely expressed in their inactive proenzyme form in most cells, and once activated, they can often activate other procaspases, allowing initiation of a protease cascade. Some procaspases can actually also aggregate and auto-activate, meaning they all activate each other. This proteolytic cascade in which one caspase can activate other caspases amplifies the apoptotic signaling pathway and leads to rapid cell death once it's initiated. So some features of apoptotic cells you're going to see extensive protein cross-linking, and that's achieved through the expression and activation of tissue transglutaminase. There's also going to be DNA breakdown by calcium and magnesium-dependent endonucleases, resulting in DNA fragments. So a characteristic DNA ladder can be seen by gel electrophoresis during apoptosis. Another biochemical feature is the expression of cell surface markers that result in the early phagocytic recognition of apoptotic cells by adjacent cells, permitting quick phagocytosis with minimal compromise to the surrounding tissue and minimal inflammation. This is achieved by the movement of the normal inward-facing phosphatidylserine of the cell's lipid bilayer to expression on the outer layers of the plasma membrane. We did talk about this very briefly, I think maybe in the first episode or the second episode, where we talked about membranes. So this phosphatidylserine flipping from the inner leaflet to the outer leaflet is a well-known recognition ligand for phagocytosis. Recent studies have shown that other proteins may also be exposed during apoptotic cell clearance, but this phosphatidylserine should be is like a buzzword for apoptosis. So we're going to start by talking about the intrinsic or the mitochondrial pathway. The intrinsic signaling pathways that initiate apoptosis involve a diverse array of non-receptor-mediated stimuli, so meaning it's not coming from an outside signal. 
These are intracellular signals that act directly on targets within the cell, and these are all going to be mitochondrial initiated events. The stimuli that in initiate the intrinsic pathway produce intracellular signals that act either in a positive or a negative fashion. Negative signals involve the absence of certain growth factors, hormones, or cytokines that can lead to failure of suppression of death programs, therefore triggering apoptosis. So basically a loss of apoptotic suppression or other stimuli act in a positive fashion and include but are not limited to radiation, toxins, hypoxia, hyperthermia, viral infections, and free radicals, which actually by their presence initiate apoptosis. All of these stimuli cause changes to the inner mitochondrial membrane, which result in an opening of the mitochondrial permeability transition pore, loss of the mitochondrial transmembrane potential, and release of two main groups of proapeptotic proteins, which are normally sequestered. The first group is cytochrome C, which activates caspase-dependent mitochondrial pathways. Cytochrome C specifically activates procaspase 9, forming an apoptosome, and the clustering of procaspase 9 leads to caspase 9 activation. The second group of proapoptotic proteins, AIF, apoptosis-inducing factor, include endonuclease G and CAD, which are released from the mitochondria during apoptosis, but this is a little bit of a later event that occurs after the cell is committed to die, and these perform caspase-independent chromatin cleavage. Now, the control and regulation of these apoptotic mitochondrial events, namely the permeabilization, occurs through memories of the BCL2 family of proteins. The tumor suppressor Protein P53, which we discussed and we will discuss many times, has a role in regulation of the BCL2 family, but we don't exactly know the mechanism of this regulation. So why the BCL2 family of proteins are so important is because they govern the mitochondrial membrane permeability. Normally, things like cytochrome C can't get out of the mitochondria. Nothing can unless the membrane is permeabilized. This permeabilization is accomplished by having a pore opened by backs and back proteins. Now, under normal non-apoptotic conditions, the BCL2 family regulates backs and back. So BCL2 is widely anti-apoptotic. Now, how do, how do we remove the regulation of backs and back? There are proteins called BH3-only proteins, which are sentinel proteins. They monitor the cell for stress. And when they sense cell stress, they get activated. And they're competitive binders for the BCL2 family. So the BH3-only bind to the BCL2, and they liberate backs and back when they sense that the cell is under stress, and this allows backs and back to form pores in the mitochondrial membrane and start this process. Now, the BCL proteins are interesting. They are actually named because B-cell lymphoma is characterized by B-cell immortalization because of BCL2 overexpression. This overexpression makes them resistant to apoptosis because backs and back are held prisoner and can't open these pores for cytochrome C. Now, since then, we've discovered that BCL2 is expressed widely, but sometimes these old names just stick, and that's why these are called the BCL2 family. But interestingly, this has led to drugs for B-cell lymphoma. BH3 mimetic drugs are created based on the structure of BH3 and act like BH3 to bind the BCL2 family and free backs and backs so they can do their job. But that's just a side note. This BCL2 family basically regulates backs and back, prevents mitochondrial pores from opening unless it's, being, unless it's signaled and inhibited by BH3-only sentinels. Now what about the extrinsic pathway? How and why is that activated? So sometimes it's not an intrinsic issue with the cell. Sometimes the cell just has to die, like it finished its job, or there's something wrong in the tissue, in which case it gets an extrinsic signal, a so-called death ligand. These signals can be autocrine, paracrine, or drexacrine. This is a really great example of the cell sensing and responding to its environment. And death ligands are sometimes secreted by immune cells, but it's not always a sure death. Sometimes these ligands can actually cause survival. TNF-alpha is a really good example of a context-dependent death ligand. But basically, in the right conditions, 
a death ligand is going to bind to receptor and it's going to cause an intracellular process to start, which is going to converge on the execution pathway. So the extrinsic and intrinsic pathways both end at the point of the execution phase, which is considered the final pathway of apoptosis. And this is the activation of execution caspases, and that begins this phase of apoptosis. So execution caspases activate cytoplasmic endonuclease, which degrades nuclear material, and proteases that degrade the nuclear and cytoskeletal proteins. Now, phagocytic uptake of apoptotic cells is the last component of this apoptosis. So phospholipid asymmetry and externalization of the phosphatidylserine, like we said last time, is the hallmark of this phase. And although the mechanism of phosphatidylserine translocation is not well understood, it's been associated with the loss of aminophospholipid translocase activity and nonspecific flip-flop of the phospholipids of various classes. So basically, we don't exactly know why it happens, but the appearance of phosphatidylserine on the outer leaflet of apoptotic cells facilitates non-inflammatory recognition by phagocytes, allowing for their early uptake and disposal. And this process of early and efficient uptake with no release of cellular constituents results in essentially no inflammatory response. Now, viruses actually can sometimes take advantage of this of apoptosis in a weird way. So we normally think of viruses mutating often so that the immune system can't catch them. But their primary goal is really to keep the host cell alive long enough to replicate. So viruses actually often include anti-apoptotic factors in the DNA that they insert, which inhibits the cell death. Often this is overexpression of the BCL2 family members, for example. Remember that those are the ones that are overexpressed in B-cell lymphoma. So similarly, viruses can insert part of their DNA into the host DNA, which overexpresses BCL2 and stops apoptosis, even though the cell realizes there's something wrong and BH3 is trying to signal there's so much BCL2 that backs and back can't do anything about it and the cell stays alive long enough for the virus to replicate. Now, is apoptosis reversible? It was always traditionally considered irreversible, but recent experiments have suggested that cells might actually be able to be brought back from the brink. There's this relatively new discovery of anastasis or resurrection. And they found this out because the uptake and clearance of apoptotic cells by macrophages may actually involve more than just the removal of cell debris. Experiments in roundworms have shown that blocking engulfment genes in the worms enhances cell survival when cells are subjected to weak pro-apoptotic signaling. They've demonstrated that in worms, mutations that cause partial loss of function of killer genes allow the survival of some cells that are programmed to die via apoptosis, and mutations in engulfment genes enhance the frequency of the cell survival. Moreover, mutations in engulfment genes alone allow survival and differentiation of some cells that were otherwise destined to die via apoptosis. These findings suggest that genes that mediate corpse removal for lack of a better word, can also function to actively kill the cells. In other words, the engulfing cells may act to ensure that cells triggered to undergo apoptosis will die rather than recover after the initial stages of death, where we used to think that once you started the execution pathway, there was a point of no return and the cell was definitely going to die. These newer findings suggest that there may actually be an element caused by the macrophages, which encourages the cell death, which means that if you take away the macrophages, the cells may be able to be rescued. And indeed, this was shown in cells in the rat eye, that elimination of macrophages in the anterior chamber of the rat eye resulted in survival of endothelial cells that normally undergo apoptosis. So, Clearly, we still have a lot left to learn about this really interesting process. And now a final word on cell death. There is actually evidence of other forms of non-apoptotic program cell death that should be considered because they might lead to new insights into cell death programs and reveal different roles in development, homeostasis, cancer, degeneration, because it's become increasingly apparent that cell death mechanisms include a very diverse array of phenotypes, and it's not just apoptosis versus necrosis like we used to think. And there are maybe other forms of programmed cell death. So there's some resistance to the exclusive use of the term 
programmed cell death to describe apoptosis specifically and more of a move towards trying to describe things as specifically as possible because there may be other forms of programmed cell death that we have yet to learn about. Okay, so that's all for now. If we just quickly summarize some highlights, apoptosis, a form of programmed cell death, is often part of natural processes and can also be initiated when a cell is damaged. There are two broad ways of inducing apoptosis, the external or the death ligand pathway and the internal or mitochondrial pathway, but they both converge on the executioner pathway, which activates caspases to fragment the nuclear chromatin, and the cell puts out eat-me signals to attract professional macrophages to clean it up quickly and discreetly without causing any inflammation. We touched on the role of the BCL2 family in cancer, and I just wanted to leave you with the idea that this subject is by no means done and dusted. There is so much more to learn about the way that cells live and die, and it's so applicable to so many illnesses that we see frequently with cancer, neurodegenerative disease, even viral infections being just some examples. I hope you enjoyed and you learned something new today. If you liked this and it was helpful to you, I'd really appreciate if you'd share it with your friends and rate the show. I'm always super happy to take comments, questions, and suggestions by email medtogether26 at gmail.com, and I'll catch you next time.